0: morning we want to finish up our series we've entitled Footprints of Faith, and we've looked at John the Baptist, Andrew, Peter, and now this morning, Nathaniel. Each a little different personality, much to be learned from each, especially in Jesus's interaction with them. And in particular with Andrew and Nathaniel, you know, people we don't really think so much about. Peter is more prominent in our thoughts. When we come to Nathaniel, he highlights something that's not very often talked about, spoken about, or taught. And so I want to compare it to something that is very much talked about, emphasized, and is very popular in the world today, and that is this thing called meditation. Now, we recently got a subscription to Pure Flix, and we've really been enjoying that at home. It's such a blessing to be able to watch things on your TV that were... Principles and practices are just normal. I mean, I mean that's such a blessing to see that. But sometimes we can't find something on there, and, and we'll switch over to you guys and hold your ears for a minute. Sometimes my wife and I switch over to the uh, Hallmark Channel. But really, you know, I, I mean, next to PureFlix, that's. At least if I watch a romance with my wife or uh, one of the Hallmark mysteries, usually we don't see people killing each other and fighting and, and uh, you know, cursing and all, all that at least. But there's a big difference. On Pure Flick, you see Christian people talking about faith, prayer, going to church, so forth. But on the Hallmark channel, mostly you don't see that. But what you do see is people meditating, people doing these things. It's not really pushed, but it's just it's just popular. It's it's what uh, evidently people are doing. Uh, <clears throat> there's been a lot of scientific studies about meditation. Uh, one that I found uh, yesterday from a website called Healthline.com, and There's a whole list of authors and reviewers here that have all sorts of advanced degrees in psychology and and so forth. And uh, this article lists 12 science-based benefits of meditation. They say it reduces stress, controls anxiety, promotes emotional health, enhances self-awareness, lengthens attention span, Reduces age-related memory loss. What was that? Memory loss. Yeah, uh, and it can generate kindness, and and so on. Improves your sleep. I, I, I don't doubt that. In fact, there's been a lot of these really intense studies where they scan people's brains that meditate, and they say that you know they can identify the beneficial effects and so forth. And and I, I don't doubt that. But listen to, the, listen to the definition of meditation given by this article. The definition is this. They say, meditation is the habitual process of training your mind to focus and redirect your thoughts. Okay. We need some focus. And We certainly need to direct our thoughts. But what sticks out to me in that definition is, to focus on and redirect your thoughts. There is what I would describe and call biblical meditation that has a drastically different definition. And that's focusing on understanding and applying God's thoughts which is far, far more important than what we're normally thinking. Biblical meditation has a different source. The source is not us. It's not what's inside of us. It's what God has said that should become part of us and should dwell within us. For example, Psalm 1, verses 1 and 2, Blessed is the person who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Meditating day and night on God's Word. Paul wrote in Colossians 3, verse 16, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. You see, I would define biblical meditation this way. It is the act of dwelling upon and reflecting upon God's Word and understanding how His Word applies to our life. Biblical meditation goes beyond reading the Word. Well, you've got to read it before you meditate, so we understand. Reading is important, but it goes beyond the reading of God's Word. If you have a reading plan, stick with it. We're, We're not trying to replace that in your thinking. We're just saying there's another step. It goes beyond just reading. It even goes beyond memorizing the Word. Now, Memorizing will really help you to be able to meditate on it, because you, you've got something to think about. But reading and memorizing are not the ultimate. Personal application that you draw from God's Word as the Spirit of God directs your thinking and understanding, changes your life. As David wrote so many years ago in Psalm 119, 11, your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Now, there may well be some health benefits to meditating on God's Word, but I can tell you what, there's some surefire spiritual benefits that I would suggest to you are far more important than any physical benefit that may come. And that's what we want to talk about this morning. If we learn to meditate on God's Word, to reflect on it, to dwell on it, to think about it, to try to apply it, It'll change our lives. Now, just in case some of you are thinking, you know, I don't want to get too spiritual. You know? I mean, we all know people and have been around people that are Christians and they love the Lord, but they just kind of a little bit over the top. I remember a, a young girl I knew in college years ago, and she couldn't complete a sentence without saying praise God. Okay? that I mean, Nothing wrong with that. But sometimes when people are just too upfront, we wonder how sincere they might be. Don't we? We do you think we begin to wonder. Is it put on? So, so we're kind of, we kind of draw back from, you know, projecting Christianity to, to everyone all the time. Then that's okay. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't be thinking on and meditating on and applying God's word in, in our life and our actions and in our words constantly. So don't don't, don't fear overexposure, just apply it differently. So what we want to talk about today is this point. Reading and reflecting on God's Word is an essential part of our spiritual life. I put reading in there because you've got to read it before you can reflect on it. But remember, don't stop there reading and reflecting on God's word we'll call that process those two steps meditation biblical meditation it's a very essential aspect of our entire life no matter what we're doing but what are the benefits how how does this if it's so essential how does it make our life better how does it improve our relationship with the Lord? Well, there's three big fits that you can identify that we can see in the life of Nathaniel. And the first one is simply this. Biblical meditation produces discernment. Now, let's go to Nathaniel and see that. Let's go to John chapter 1. Uh, We're going to begin at verse 45, John 1, 45, all the way down to verse 49. We're going to read verse 45 to start with. Philip found Nathanael. Now remember, Andrew found Philip, or I mean Jesus found Philip, uh, but Andrew probably had a part in that as we discussed. And the next step in this progression of these people becoming uh, disciples of Jesus Christ is Nathaniel, And it says, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So who was Nathaniel? Who was this fellow that Philip found? Bible commentators are really all over the map on who he might have been. But I think it's very easy to discern. When you think about it, Nathanael is not mentioned anywhere else in the New Testament except the last part of the Gospel of John. So, the the name Nathanael doesn't appear on any of the list of Jesus' disciples. Yet, we find him here in the beginning of the Gospel of John with the disciples, the other men who became disciples of Jesus, and we find at the end of the Gospel of John with Peter and and John and James and all those who went back to fishing after Peter's denial and after the crucifixion of Christ before they knew he had been resurrected. And Nathaniel was listed with them having gone back to fishing. So how is it he's there in John 1, he's there at the end of John, and and he's not mentioned anywhere else? Well, most Bible uh, interpreters believe he is indeed the one called Bartholomew. And that makes perfect sense, because Nathaniel is a given name. That was the name given to him by his parents. Bartholomew is an ancestral name. Bar means son of in Hebrew. Well, remember last week, Peter, Bar-Joseph, son of Joseph. So, it's <clears throat> perfectly understandable to call him one or the other. But he seems to be in the group, and probably indeed was Bartholomew. That being said, let's talk a little bit about this man, Nathanael. Nathanael knew the scriptures. No doubt about that. It's it's, it's so evident here. Uh, When Philip tells him, we have found the Messiah, and he is Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph, what is Nathanael's response? Nathanael said unto him, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. That's verse forty-six. Why did he say, "Can any good thing come out of Nazareth?" Well, here, Bible commentators will say, "Well, maybe, perhaps Nazareth was a kind of a rough town, and you know, it, it, it had a reputation for no good." Uh, others suggest maybe that John or others were like Nathaniel were kind of prejudiced against uh, people that came from uh, from Nazareth. Remember, Jesus was not born in Nazareth. When they came back from fleeing to Egypt, after he was born in Bethlehem, Mary Joseph and the babe fled to Egypt because of Herod, who killed the babies. When they come back, God warned them, they went to the north, they went to Galilee, they settled in Nazareth. But from Nathaniel's standpoint, being a man, I believe, who knew the scriptures well, would have immediately said, Nazareth? I mean, he would have known of Micah chapter 5, verse 2, which specifically states that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. He was, but Nathanael had no way of knowing that. But Nathanael knew the scriptures. The scriptures gave him understanding. So when he heard this, he was discerning about what he was hearing. and saying, wait a minute, there's something not right here. That's what discernment is. And when we understand the Scripture, when we meditate on the Scripture and we make it a part of our life, we gain discernment. The unfolding of your words, says the psalmist in Psalm 119. David writes in verse 130, the unfolding of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. Now, that's not a derogatory term when it says the simple. The Hebrew understanding of someone who is simple, it just means somebody that's untaught, somebody that's young and Well, discernment will come as we grow and mature, but it comes through God. His words give light and understanding to the simple. Solomon, uh, <coughs> I'm getting my characters mixed up again. Nathaniel's discernment, that we just spoke of, which immediately caused him to doubt whether Jesus was the Messiah based on where he was from. That discernment is derived from God's Word. It comes from God's Word. Discernment is based on what the Scriptures reveal. I said Nathaniel was a student of the Word. He knew the Word. Let's go back to verse Forty-six Again, Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said, this is the latter part of verse 46. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said, okay, he's intrigued enough to go and then listen. And he says, you know, I don't mind, I've got my doubts about this. Jesus sees him coming and Jesus says, as he sees Nathanael coming, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Now, you remember when Jesus saw Peter, he said, You shall be called Peter the Rock. His name was Simon. That was prophetic. Here Jesus states something about the character of Nathanael, but he had never spoken to Nathanael. Humanly speaking, he would have no way of understanding anything about what kind of character Nathanael had. He says two things of importance here. He says, Behold, an Israelite. Now, who was named Israel in the Old Testament? Jacob. Jacob was renamed Israel. When he finally got over his old ways and submitted himself to the Lord. And Nathanael's called an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Well, who was the most deceitful person in the Old Testament? It was Jacob, who later became Israel. He was the, uh, you know, he was the ultimate trickster. The con man who tricked his brother and his father to gain the birthright. Well, hearing this statement from Jesus, Behold, an Israelite indeed, or in, whom there, indeed in whom there is no deceit, the Bible says, Nathaniel said to him, How do you know me? Well, it's a reasonable question. He's, he's somebody who's going to have to understand and, and have verification of anything before he reaches a conclusion. He's a discerning person. How how do you know me? Jesus answered and said unto him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Now, let's stop for a minute. The common Jewish houses in that day were made out of stones. They had one room and a flat roof and no A.C., okay? Okay? Just picture your house as insulated as it may be right now with no AC, okay? So <clears throat> they would normally not dwell in the house in the late afternoon into the evening because the heat would have built up in there. They would go up and reside on the roof, catch some breeze. They might uh, prepare meals up there, eat up there. They, they often, even often slept on the roof for that reason. That just to help our understanding. The other place they would go to get out of the heat is under the shade of a fig tree. I remember as a youngster, I grew up in a town, nobody had air conditioning. That was just unheard of. But everybody had a front porch to get on when it was hot and there was some breeze. Or or you would see people sitting in lawn chairs under the shade of a tree. It's just the same thing. Today we just go inside, you know, but unless we want to be outside for some particular reason. But being under the fig tree is often where Jews would go to pray, have their devotions, about God, meditate. It actually became proverbial in those days to refer to being under the fig tree as, as a way of saying, spending time in prayer and meditation. So some would doubt whether Andrew was actually under a fig tree or maybe he was just meditating somewhere else. Doesn't really matter. I think he really was under a fig tree. And the, the, the incredible part about this was not that Jesus saw him under the fig tree. Believe me, I never saw a fig tree until I, I moved to North Carolina from West Virginia. You know, we didn't have fig trees in West Virginia, but they have fig trees in eastern North Carolina. And... Uh, Believe me, you can sit under a big fig tree and you can still see there's somebody under there. Uh, maybe on Sunday might get such you know, thick foliage, maybe you couldn't. But it, it's not a complete, you know, completely secluded place. I don't think anything about Jesus seeing him under the fig tree necessarily proved anything to Nathaniel. It wasn't that Jesus saw him under the tree that convinced Nathanael that he really was the Messiah. It was the fact that Jesus knew what he was thinking about under the fig tree when he saw him. Well, where does it say that? Well, it's it's very clear in in the Scripture here. What did Jesus say? Behold an Israelite in whom there is no guile, no deceit. Apparently, and this is further confirmed when we get further into the context, apparently... Nathaniel, sitting under the fig tree, was thinking. and they, they didn't have Bible. They didn't have printed Bibles. They had scrolls, but pretty, the scrolls are pretty much in the, the synagogues. So he, he's sitting under the fig tree. He's not reading about Jacob. He's thinking about Genesis chapter twenty-eight, the story of. Jacob, as he's fleeing from having tricked his brother out of his birthright, and he solved plotting to kill him, and he's fleeing, he's going to, uh, to Laban's house uh, far away. He stops for the night, and God gives him this vision of what we typically refer to as Jacob's ladder, which confirmed the fact that God was going to fulfill the promises made to Abraham and then to Isaac in the person of Jacob, or to him as well. That's very important. But Jacob was he was not a fit character to receive anything from God at that point. And I suspect that Nathaniel was thinking about that and, and saying, you know, if God could, could and would fulfill his promises and and and, 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 and 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 give his grace to someone like Jacob, then That's wonderful, but I don't want to be like Jacob. I, I, if God's so wonderful and so gracious and so forgiving and, and and so true to His word, I should be different than Jacob. And I think it was. The omniscience of Jesus. Omniscience meaning the fact that God knows everything. And Jesus here, exercising God's omniscience and God's plan at that moment, tells Nathanael what he was thinking about when he's sitting under that fig tree. But you know, Nathaniel had to have been thinking about Jacob, Genesis 28. And so we see Nathaniel's response again. Nathaniel answered him. And this is what he said. Rabbi, meaning teacher. Rabbi, you are the Son of God. Capital S in the English, but reflecting on what the psalmist says, what David says in, in Psalm 2, this would have been a concept understood by the Jews, a concept regarding the deity of the Messiah. So, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. He uses that word again. Nathaniel was convinced that he was the Messiah. Nathaniel came to that discernment when he saw the omniscience of Jesus, because he knew the Scripture taught what the ta- what the Scripture taught about the Messiah. So his understanding of the Word gave him. Discernment. Now, we could go on and on talking about why we need discernment, but I don't, I don't think that's necessary. In the day in which we live, we're so much... You, just, you watch the news anymore, you don't know whether you're listening to truth or error. You, you, don't, you don't know what you're hearing. You don't know how much of it is reality. It's the day and age we live in. Same with the Internet. It's same with the social media. We certainly need discernment. So we don't need to... To dwell on that, but discernment comes from God's Word. Okay? The benefits of biblical meditation. Number one, meditation produces discernment. Number two, biblical meditation purifies the heart. The second benefit it purifies the heart. Now, we can deduce this simply by looking at verse 47. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said to him, Behold an Israelite, indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael was a person who had a purified heart. Now, I mean, he wasn't perfect, obviously. But he was applying God's word to his life, and it was shaping and molding his character. If Jesus could make a statement like that. Listen, every one of us has a measure of deceit. In our character. And we have to do a lot of work to make sure that we eliminate that. For God, for Jesus to say, no deceit, in whom there's no deceit, it meant no trickery, no dishonesty, no hypocrisy, no pretending, no worrying about what people think about you. That's some compliment, by the way. The word deceit in the original means—it was a word used in the Greek language to refer to bait, where you trick a fish to bite a hook. You know, we probably all know someone like this. You know someone, probably, or have known. I have. Someone who is continually stretching the truth. We're continually embellishing the truth. I used to have a friend in high school who was like this. You know, after a while, he would say incredible stuff, and I'd say, okay. You know, I, nobody believes you when you do that. Maybe, maybe for a moment, maybe for a little while. Why do, why do people do that? Well, it's a sad expression of their insecurity. But what happens? Well, you remember the, the fable, the loyal cried wolf. <laughs> Eventually, nobody believes anything you say, right? But to have no deceit means that you live your life in such a way that when you speak, people believe what you say. They know you're not trying to trick them, deceive them. This was the kind of person that Nathaniel was. Now let's go to 1 Peter chapter 1. Excuse me, chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2 for a moment. Peter writes, 1 Peter 2, verse 1, therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit, same word. Putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babes like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word. You see the word pure? It's translated deceit in that same sentence earlier in the previous verse, translated deceit. It's the same word translated pure without the prefix on the word which negates. In other words, when it says deceit, it says adulos, which means the opposite of being pure. And then when He uses the word, the same word, to refer to pure milk. He drops the Greek alpha in front of it, so it's the opposite. So what's this mean? Okay, it says we should be doing this. We should be putting aside, putting aside all malice, all deceit, all hypocrisy, all envy, all slander. Those are all participles that modify the main verb, which is in verse 2, and the main verb is to desire or long for, as it's translated here, the pure milk of the word that you may grow in respect of salvation. So you can't can't grow in your spiritual life. You can't grow to maturity unless you deal with deceit and these other sins. There's things you have to lay aside and put off while at the same time focusing on, meditating on, applying the truth to what your life should be on the other hand. When we do this, a cleansing takes place, because to lay aside malice, deceit, you've got to confess that as sin. You've got to understand it's wrong. But what does 1 John 1, 9 say? We all know that verse. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and do what? To cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So, a purified heart, then, comes from exposure to the Word of God. It's good to read it. We discussed that already. It's good to memorize it if you want. That's good, too. But there's a third step <clears throat> that is crucial, and that is meditating upon the Word of God. We read, uh, we read uh, Psalm 1, where it talks about meditating on the Word of God, the law of God, day and night. The Hebrew word translated meditate means to literally mouth words under your breath to yourself, going over something. You don't need anybody else to hear it. You're just reminding yourself. So if you take the word of God and you go over it, you reflect on it, you think about it, you... Focus your energies on understanding it, not only just what it says, but how it applies to your life. That's meditation. And that produces confession of sin and changes your character. So, so far, we have looked at two benefits of biblical meditation reading and reflecting on the Word of God. Discernment is the first. Cleansing, confession of sin, having a purified heart is number two. There's a final one. Biblical meditation provides assurance. Well, that's a given, right? It's God's word, God's promises, it's God's truth that gives us hope. Well, to even place your faith on Jesus Christ means that you trust Him, you have assurance that. He's going to redeem you. Having redeemed you, he's going to, you know, change your life. Uh, You're going to be born again. You're going to enter into a relationship with him. But once once we become a Christian, we are bombarded in life with all sorts of issues, trials, problems. So many things that we hear and see, so many threats and fears, Sometimes we need a little booster shot. You know what I mean? Where does daily assurance that we do not have to spiral into despair, that we do not have to give up to just walking around being depressed all the time, where does that come from? It comes from a continual exposure to the Word of God. Remember, exposure. I had a friend years ago that worked night shift, and he came home, and he, he just started renting an apartment that had a swimming pool, and he just thought, I'll just go outside, and I will lay down, put on my swimming trunks, go out there, lay down, and get some sun. He'd been up all night, and he went to sleep. He was overexposed in a few hours. That's how I got a... A job I needed in seminary because he couldn't go to work. He, he, cleaned, it, he cleaned McDonald's at night, so uh, I got to go fill in for him and I got a part-time job out of that. He was overexposed. We cannot be overexposed to the Word of God. There are no harmful effects to exposure to the Word of God. It's all good. Good for your health? Yes, we mentioned that, probably so. but it's very, very beneficial. To your spiritual life. So, what does Jesus say to him? After after Nathanael says, You are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. What does Jesus say next? Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you, this is verse uh, 50. Look at the last two verses now, 1551. Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. Now, we've got to stop and look at this. That's a, it's, it's translated as a question. I'm reading from the New American Standard, 1995. It says, Do you believe? And it has a question mark. But it could just as well be translated, You do believe without a question mark. That's just a translation thing there. I don't think Jesus was asking, do you believe? He knew that Nathanael believed. Nathanael already professed to him to be the son of God, the king of Israel, the, the Messiah. Jesus was saying, okay, you believe who I am. you got the basics. you got basic faith. Let me give you something more to look forward to. Let me give you some more assurance. You will see greater things than these. Greater than what? Greater than these? Greater than Jesus knowing his thoughts? What would that be? And then Jesus in the next verse says this, And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Wait a minute, think now. Nathaniel under the fig tree. I said he was thinking about Genesis twenty eight, the vision of Jacob's ladder. What was happening on that ladder? Angels were ascending and descending. Jesus was saying to Nathanael, you're going to see something greater than what you can only see looking back and and reading the truth of what happened without being there. You're going to personally experience something greater than that. I don't know. There's probably a lot of things that entered into it. But I suspect that's one thing that kept Nathanael going for the rest of his life. Nathaniel wasn't a nerd. He, he wasn't a Bible nerd. He wasn't a bookworm. He just recognized the importance of God's Word. Nathaniel, in reality, was a man of action, a leader, a missionary. Church history tells us he took the Word of God to Persia, to India, and Armenia, and eventually gave up his life as a martyr. What did this mean? What was the assurance? I'm not really sure. I just love it in the ABF when someone asks me a question, and they, they, you, you all ask such deep questions, and you're so thoughtful, and I'll, I'll have to look at you and say, I don't know. It's things we just don't know. It's not revealed. I can come up with some doggone good guesses. And that's probably what you're, that's what you're going to find in a commentary. A lot of guesses as to what this means. There, there's no specific incident anywhere in the Gospels of anything akin to what's described here. So commentators will say, well, it's probably just a reference to the whole of, of all he would see in Jesus and all the miracles that he did. It's just kind of a reference to the whole. Uh, and he's just tying it back to the 20. It's possible. Well, since everybody else is guessing, I'm going to throw something out there. Matthew chapter 25, verses 29 to 31. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky. The the mourning ones are the ones that don't know Jesus when he comes back. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory, and he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together, his elect, from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. Jesus returning in a slow and deliberate manner at the end of the tribulation, the second coming, the church already had been removed for seven years, slowly descending, all the people of the earth will see him as the the world rotates or it's put on, you know, electronic media. Somehow the the whole world has access to seeing this event happening in slow motion, so to speak, and the angels God being sent out and they're gathering the elect from the four corners of the earth and, and coming back. I don't know about you, but it sounds a whole lot to me like what Jesus is describing when he spoke to Nathaniel. I don't know what it is. But we do know that the resurrection for old Testament saints, the dispensation of the law will come at the same time Jesus comes back. So, wouldn't Nathaniel be there? Could well be, depending on what moment that resurrection took place. I don't know that. I just don't know. But I do know this. This is what I do know. I will be there. And you will be there. Because we're coming back with him. And I... And that's all the assurance that I need to keep me going some days. And it comes from God's word. And you understand truth when you give yourself to understanding God's word. Don't just read it and forget it. Now, look, you're not going to remember a lot of things over time. You you, you you feed on the Word of God, uh, You know, you you learned at one point. You might have to come back to it and be reminded of it later. I ate last week either. So get in the habit. If, take whatever portion you can handle. So I, I, I Sometimes it's just a verse. Sometimes it's a phrase that I'll dwell for a long time. God will reveal what it means. Oh yeah, consult your commentaries, do your research, do your study. The real power of meditation when is the personal application that you derive from it, that the Holy Spirit helps you with in the process. Here's a good thing to do. Pastor Dave preached on Psalm 139 recently. What if all of us had read Psalm 139 the night before we came to church? I I didn't. I'm just theorizing here. Did anybody do that? Okay. No better off than me. But if you read it, you say, you, you know, I read the Bible and I don't understand somebody. I need help. If you would just read what he's preaching and then add what he says to what you've read and keep thinking about what would happen in your life instead of I hear it. I forget it, I hear it again, I forget. We get so used to hearing the Word of God over and over. We don't reflect on it meditate on it.